Good morning. Happy Easter. He is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. The scripture for this morning that was read by uh, Carrie Gunn, Garrett Sturgis, and Joyce Wilkins is the entirety of Matthew 28. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen. Just as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. That's God's word for us. Thank you, Lord, for the truth and trustworthiness of it. So my name is Andy. I am a husband and a father. I'm a pastor here at Water's Edge. Um, I'm also a child of God. But I want to share you one story this week about me and my own child. See, earlier this week, it was a very calm and mellow morning. We had no place to be, and I was making breakfast for the family. And during Easter time, we love to decorate eggs, and we received this machine that spins in a circle, and you're able to make these wonderful looking eggs, really artistic and beautiful. In fact, I had one that I showed at the gathering. Well, while my son, Mac, was making an egg, it spun off. And I guess the detail is important. It was an egg that was raw. It spun off into the table and splattered on the floor. And my son instantly ran to me and said, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, Dad. I'm so sorry. And I told him, hey, it's okay, it's not a big deal. And he kept on saying, I'm so sorry, I am so sorry, I'm so sorry. And Mac, I was like, not a big deal, it's okay. Minor mistake. But then he kept on communicating, I'm so sorry. And 
to the point where I, I had to ask Jesus through the Holy Spirit, hey, what's going on here? What's going on here? And I sensed a word from Jesus, a word from the Holy Spirit who speaks for Jesus. Mac is afraid. My son is afraid. So then I went to Mac and I said, are you afraid? Are you afraid of me getting angry? To which he responded, yeah, yes, I am. And in that moment, the Lord brought to my mind many unmellow mornings. Mornings where we are on the go, getting ready for school, need to move. Mornings where smoothies had been spilled or oatmeal is all over the place. Mornings where I was easily irritated and angry. And it was that moment in the midst of his quote-unquote mistake that I needed to tell Mac, hey, I've made a mistake. There are times when I get angry at things that just don't matter, and I am sorry about that, son. The way I responded this morning is the way I wanted to respond when things like this happens. Hey, I love you. It's not a big deal. And that was a gracious teaching moment for me, and I believe a redemptive moment for my son. Jesus is alive. We have to remember that he is alive with us in every moment, guiding us, teaching us, and loving us, and pushing us to love others. The Lord is risen, and the Lord is alive. So let me pray, Lord, we invite you in. Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak. Speak for your servants are listening. And as I speak, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, my rock, my redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now just before I share that story, we heard a scripture reading, a large scripture reading. And that first section, verses 1 through 10, are paramount for us as a church. That was read by Carrie Gunn, those first 10 verses. And there are two verses I want to highlight in particular. One, where the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know you're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen. Verses 5 and 6. And then I also want to just make a note about verse 9, where Jesus says, Greetings, the risen Lord. Hello. Hi. These words and their historical accuracy are so essential, so critical to our Judeo-Christian worldview, our faith, that if somehow we diminish the resurrection, if we try to talk it away as some type of symbol, then it makes everything we do as a church, as followers of Jesus, our practices, our good deeds, they're all irrelevant. As Paul the Apostle said, our faith is useless, absent of the resurrection. If Jesus did not carry the weight of humanity's sin on the cross, if the holiness of God did not move against this innocent man in a display that's so excruciating, so heartbreaking, that none of us can truly understand the depth of pain Jesus received, if Jesus did not rise on that third morning, physically rise from very real death, if this somehow is some type of fairy tale or some type of strange symbol of how to be a good person, then there is no reason for us to be together. There's no intimacy we have with God and others. There's no lasting purpose, no legacy, no hope to cling to. If it's true, all of it, death, resurrection, well, that changes everything. And given the evidence, the historical impact of Jesus, 
and having met the Lord himself, both personally and as a people, we profess that Jesus is alive and that he is Lord. Historically, Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead. The second portion of that scripture, which was read by Garrett, read by me, but will be Garrett in the gathering, reminds us that from the very beginning of Easter, there will be those who discount the resurrection, those who say it didn't happen. And there'll be narratives that are espoused, like the poorly named grave robber, which is really a tomb raider theory. And I think what's helpful about that is to recognize that discounting the resurrection is, is not surprising. There, there will be those who say it didn't happen. There are those today who say it never happened. And it's to be anticipated. There will, there will and will be those who deny the resurrection event. And maybe you're listening to this and you deny it. And I'd say, hey, you're welcome to listen. We're glad you're with us this morning. Finally, the third reading read by Joyce, who alongside others oversees our discipleship opportunities, mentioned the risen Lord returning and, and teaching his disciples. He taught them for 40 days. He, he continued his teaching about the kingdom of God and what it means to live in the kingdom of God. What it means to live in the kingdom of God in light of the resurrection. And he's making it clear that his teaching is to be continued. That we are to be disciples. Disciples, another word for learner, who makes disciples. And this is known as the Great Commission, where Jesus continues his teaching, calls us to be disciples who make disciples. Then Jesus came to said to them, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Let the dog hear that for a moment. I'll continue verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Lord calls us to teach everything, to continue his teaching. And I think it's where it gets interesting is because many people in our world, many people in the world relegate Jesus of Nazareth to simply being a good teacher, a, a very impactful spiritual sage. And I believe one of the results of dismissing the resurrection is, is the need to create a persona or construct to make sense of one author calls the inescapable impact of this unpredictable Jesus. I.e., you'll hear things like, well, the resurrection is an urban legend, but man, Jesus was a great teacher. To which we ask, just a teacher? Could Jesus' teachings alone change the course of history? Is there something more about this present teacher from Nazareth? Or is he simply a good teacher? And this is where I want to take a, a moment and look at the historical evidence. A lot of times during Easter, you'll hear a sermon about apologetics, the ways in which we commend and defend the faith. You'll hear certain reasons for the resurrection, which I love. Reasons brought up of like eyewitness events, the fact that the women were the first eyewitnesses in a time where women didn't have testimony in court. Why would they do that unless it's true? The disciples themselves dying for the truth of the resurrection. Why would they die for a lie? Why would they even paint a picture of themselves looking so dull and, and, and dumb-witted if they're trying to create a movement that is false? The fact that the earliest Christian creed, which is found in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 
mentioned this idea of the death and resurrection of Jesus in a time where anybody can just go and ask others, hey, did this happen? And people could say, yes, it happened. We met the risen Lord. There's a lot that I love about apologetics, but I want to pause and just consider more of an evidentialist perspective, how Jesus has changed history because his fingerprints are just about everywhere, whether it's art, science, government, medicine. I mean, just consider it. We live in 2022 AD. And whether you consider the, the period of time before AD, Anno Domingo, to be a before Christ or before the common era, Jesus still split history. Though no one has a true picture of Jesus, he and his followers are the most frequent subjects of art in the world. Children became people instead of property because Jesus said, let the children come to me. Jesus following eventually ended emperor worship and his following also created ideas such as common law and limited government. I mean, Jesus following is the reason why our dogs are now called Nero and Caesar. <laughs> Hospital and relief efforts emerged from Jesus' compassion for the malformed, the diseased and enslaved movements such as human rights, civil rights, women's suffrage, abolitionist movement, rights for disabled, all were started by Jesus' followers and public education too. Speaking of education, when, when Jesus gave his great commission, as we talked about teaching, to go and make disciples, teaching them everything that I've commanded, his followers took it seriously. And it said in Acts 2 that they were teaching day and night in the temple courts, day after day. And they weren't just teaching men, but women as well. Around 150 AD, a Jesus follower by the name of Justin Martyr formed schools. But these schools weren't just for the wealthy and cultural elite, but for males, females, slaves, and free. Because they remembered we followed a guy who taught everybody. And as we fast forward in time during the Dark Ages, after the collapse of Rome, where the Huns and Goths and Visigoths were, were sacking civilizations and, and leaving the libraries, it was Christian monastic communities who were copying every text and manuscript they can get their hands on. Not only the Christian saints, but pagan and classical authors because they believed, as Augustine believed, that all truth was God's truth. In fact, a Jesus follower by the name of Benedict became known as the godfather of libraries. And as we consider these monastic communities, they, they, they evolved into universities, Oxford, Cambridge, and Paris, and later in the States, Harvard and Yale. Virtually the entire Western system of education and scholarship arise from the premise of Jesus' prayer that they would know you, God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Because God was the source, the rock of all knowledge. Even professor was a term that came from profession of faith, something I believe to be true and of value and should be known. The goal of universal literacy for everybody in society came from the idea that Martin Luther espoused the priesthood of all believers. Everybody should be free to read so they can interpret the scriptures for themselves. Science. Classical science arose one time in history in Europe in late 16th century during Christendom. Whether we want to believe it or not, it's true. Christians believe that matter was good and should be studied. Life was created by an orderly and rational God, and therefore there's reason to expect order and not chaos to empirically prove regularity in creation slash nature. 
This led to experimentation, of course, the scientific method. Diogenes Allen from Yale says, from its very birth, science owed a great deal from Christianity. And the vast majority of pioneers of science, William of Ockham, Francis Bacon, Galileo, Copernicus, Pascal, who ruined my fluid dynamics class. <laughs> he was great. Uh, pre oh, that was Pasteur. I can't remember. Priestley, Louis Pasteur, Isaac Newton, who wrote a lot of commentaries on revolution, they all viewed their work as learning to think God's thoughts. And is there more? Of course. Alphabets, dictionaries, collars and shoes for horses, eyeglasses. But I digress. All of these came as a result of Jesus saying to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, and all of your mind. So as you consider the historical impact of Jesus, what sticks out to you? And I think a very important question beside that, maybe more important, how is Jesus changing the course of your life? Take time to consider that. Jesus is a good teacher, but no teacher can make the impact that he has. See, our church has spent the last few months studying the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And the Sermon on the Mount discusses amazing truths about what it means to be blessed and therefore to love your enemies, what it means to honor and respect each other's bodies, to speak words with truth and encouragement, to not judge or really condemn others. And, and there's so much more to this beautiful discourse, to not be someone who you're not supposed to be, but to own your identity as God's beloved. But the heart of it all, and almost everyone respects the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, one Harvard professor calls it the most luminous, quoted, analyzed, and tested, influential moral and religious discourse in all human history. It inspired many. It inspired a writer by the name of Leroy, or Leo Tolstoy, who then inspired a lawyer by the name of Mahatma Gandhi, who inspired a humanitarian slash preacher named Martin Luther King Jr. But I believe a lot of people like it if they can take it apart, if they can parse it out, they can take sections without considering the whole. Sections like turning the other cheek and loving your enemy and do not condemn or judge, do unto others, which on their own are very awesome. However, if we were to take Jesus' teaching as a whole and not parse it out, pick apart sections here and there, well, his teaching, though radically countercultural, is really odd too. I mean, in the epilogue of the Sermon on the Mount, which is in the seminar, in the conclusion, Jesus gives really three sharp warnings and one last necessary note that I think it's helpful for us to realize, especially those who consider him to be simply a teacher. He says in verse Matthew 7, verse 13, you got to enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. In other words, you can't go with the flow. You can't move towards self-centricity or self-preservation. You have to intentionally move towards God as Jesus' followers. And this sets up another warning. In verse 15, he says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly there's ferocious wolves. There will be those who lead you astray. But he gives a helpful added note that thus by their fruit you will recognize them. you got to watch out for people who will lead you off the path, lead you towards self-centricity, towards self-preservation, and then destruction. There will be those who will tell you things that are motivated by their own self-interests or by their own party interests. In the past, it sounded like people who were saying, we need to kill in the name of Christ. 
It sounded like slaveholders who told slaves, you need to obey your masters, misappropriating scripture. Today, it looks like those who politicize or nationalize their faith and therefore demonize others. It's those who like to cleave the teacher from the teaching. These are false teachers. And what undergirds their teaching is really bad fruit, antagonism, division, anxiety, dominion. Third warning. Jesus says this, and this, this talks about how clear Jesus is about himself. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is making it clear that he is not simply a teacher, that he is Lord. He's also making it clear that you can't tag along with others. You can't tag on to your parents' faith. You have to make this decision for yourself. It's not good works that matter. It's really knowing God. Knowing God. Knowing God through knowing Jesus. One last necessary note. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and put them in practice is like a wise man who built his house in the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it did not fall because it had its foundation the rock. But anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them to practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house as it fell with a great crash. Jesus is calling everyone to become his disciples, his learners. That is clear. It's a matter of life and death. The conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount says, When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he had taught as one who had authority, exousia, that's that Greek word, and not as their own teachers of the law. And this is where I want to recall that dog ear that I mentioned earlier. Jesus said himself, All authority, exousia, on heaven and earth has been given to me. This is huge. Jesus is claiming he has the authority as a son of God. He has authority over all things around us and in our lives. In short, Jesus cannot be a good teacher and claim that he's Lord over all creation. Now, if you've been around the church, you may have heard of this. This is known as the trilemma. It's been popularized by an Oxford scholar by the name of C.S. Lewis in the 20th century who, who wrote this during World War II as also became compiled in a book of mere Christianity. He wrote it this way, that a man was, who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He, he concluded that anybody who said the things Jesus said would either be a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. And when you consider the impact of this Jesus, this amazing teacher who was much more, the Lord is appropriate. And the Easter resurrection proves this claim to be true. One of my favorite teachers growing up is named Ray Steele. And, and students and teachers alike loved him. He was a warm, gentle, strong, large man. He, he never married, but his life spoke of family. And by trade, he was a math teacher who taught me, specifically taught a lot of things, taught me geometry, trig, and statistics. And he had an innate ability to teach each aspect of mathematical processes. 
without overwhelming the students. It made math fun and a puzzle to enjoy. It's one of the reasons I pursued engineering. But this isn't why students were drawn to him. People loved him in his class because he liked and loved each student who came in his door, who entered into steel country. No matter how cool or uncool they were, he greeted them, asked them about their interests that he was well aware of, and he looked in the eye. And when Mr. Steele talked to you, you knew that you had somebody who was in your corner, which was a great gift when you consider the lonely halls of high school. He loved his students. I remember a time where I, after a basketball game, I missed, I think, six foul shots in a row. And I came into his class the next morning. He said, we're going to get them foul shots this next game, aren't we? I said, yeah, we are. And I did. I got four in a row that next game, which was great. <laughs> but the truth is, Mr. Steele, he just loved his students. And as we consider Jesus, it's, it's not just Jesus' knowledge that made him a good teacher. It's not his wisdom. It's part of it is his wisdom, but it's not completely his wisdom that changed the world. It's Christ's love. It's the love of this teacher that you find, this undying love that died on a cross that opens the eyes of our hearts so the Spirit can speak to us the words of Jesus, follow me. Jesus is risen means that our Lord is alive with us in every moment. And all of us need to take place, take our place as his disciples as we take place in the family of God. We need to hear his words in real time and to imitate his ways and to put his works, which is namely loving God and others, into practice. And now I've made a critique with how much the world has evaluated Jesus of Nazareth and misappropriated him as a teacher. I also want to make a note about much of the church. If the world has relegated Jesus to Nazareth to being simply a, a, a good moral and religious teacher, much of the church has relegated faith in Jesus to being this transactional one-time decision. Hey, I said yes and I got my fire insurance type of faith. And that's not the entirety of faith, not even close. Yeah, faith is saying yes to Jesus. Romans 10.9 says, If we declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then you're saved. That's absolutely true. But our faith also means continuing to say yes to Jesus as his disciple, to hear his words and put into practice, to go and make disciples of all nations. It's continuing to say yes to Jesus, to hear his words in real time. And this is where I want to make one last important point that I believe my friend Luis will help illustrate. God is calling us to reach others for him. That's clear. But sometimes we place all of our eggs in the you need to make a one-time decision, say this sinner's prayer right now, that we miss the other ways that we can reach others. See, we can actually invite others into Jesus's ways and to see for themselves what the Lord is, who the Lord is, to taste and see that the, that the Lord is good. We can invite others into our own process of discipleship and say like, hey, I believe Jesus is Lord. His ways are life-changing. Why don't you come practice his ways and meet Jesus along the way? And this is where I, I want to invite my boy Luis up just to share a bit of what that journey has been. And it's he is on a journey, what that journey is like and what it can be like 
as we consider what it means to follow Jesus. Luis is also the handsome guy who plays the cello. Just talking 
regularly at, um, at a restaurant, and eventually he did ask me about faith, right? Um, he proposed questions to me, but he proposed them in a way where he didn't want an answer right now. So he just pretty much asked me just to kind of think, where am I, like, what does Jesus mean to me, what does faith mean to me, um, and then get back to me. I still haven't gotten back to him, but, <laughs> but, uh, but I've been thinking about it a lot, right? Um, and then, you know, doing new things, trying to still figure it out, which is what he said, but that's kind of stole my theme. I was going to say that, but he said it for So then I, now I meet with uh, a group of awesome guys every Wednesday, and uh, I never thought I'd be reading a book about religion. You asked me that six months ago, I left. Um, so it's great to be in a group with guys who are so non-judgmental, and we're all just figuring it out too, one way or another. So that really has helped. It's at 6.45 in the morning. That's really <laughs> but uh, Andy's always explicit about the work of God, and I'm still trying to figure that back out. Sure. <clears throat> right now, in the last couple months, it's a little bit of a good streak um, in that in that step, in that path, so I'm just kind of going with it. Water's Edge has been great. Everybody here, really open arms, and I, I thank you for that. Um, and it's been all positive right now, um, so thank you. Um, so one of the ways I'm trying to kind of be different and accept faith again is just going outside of the box, doing things that I was not going to be able to or not going to do a while ago. Just, you know, acting more promising less is basically what I'm trying to do. Go on hikes with my wife, go on bike rides, go on mini vacations, whatever. Um, and that's what I tried to do. So I just want to wrap it up. Just kind of, um, I'm still thinking, you know, is that good luck? Or is that Jesus? Or is that fate? It's like, you know, that's what's going on. But uh, one day, when it kind of really started to change. Um, we were in the men's group, and we split up into the mini group. So it was Hamilton and Andy and myself, and I was explaining how frustrated and annoyed. I wasn't getting interviews. I really wanted to move jobs, um, but I haven't even been asked to interview. So both Hamilton and Andy prayed for me um, right there, and they prayed for good luck and you know to be granted what I wanted, and that day I got an interview, and the next day I was offered a position. So, um, that was pretty cool. <laughs> so, that really was was kind of like, I obviously texted them right away, because I was like, this is wild. Um, but that was kind of the, the next step in my faith, in my, you know, belief. Um, so, I just wanted to thank Water's Edge. I want to thank... Um, I want to thank this place for giving me the outlet, the music outlet, and just being non-judgmental and accepting open arms, meeting awesome people. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> as you guys would say, living as God's beloved child, you know, I'm, again, trying to figure it out. I know Andy said not to gas him up, not that he needs to be, but um, thank you for being understanding and just being my friend. Appreciate it, man.
And that's the vision. That's the vision. To be able to free people up, to, to taste and see that the Lord is good. To say, hey, God, I believe in God and I believe his ways are amazing. Why don't you join me as we practice his ways and we'll see how God meets you. And I believe as a church, we're heading into a new frontier where we need to invite people into our process of discipleship, invite people who wouldn't claim faith in Jesus still into our process of discipleship and allow God to meet them. That's the invitation. That's the type of community you want to be, that we want to be. So some Easter invitations I have for you is my invitation is to come check out our church on a Sunday, explore the ways of Jesus with us. For those who kind of one foot in and out of the church to commit to being part of the church. 